I think that part of the job of religion is to help people, you know, develop this sense that, you know, the, this invisible other is there for you, involved with you, concerned for you, you know, responsive to you. And that people, to maintain that sense, you know, that's kind of what church is about. I did the work of church, the act of prayer, the devotion of worship, all the, the reading of the Bible are all ways to kind of help you have confidence in this invisible being. That, you know, if there weren't church and somebody told you there was this invisible being around, might not have much impact on your life. But the question of whether God is real, meaning yes or no, is God there in the world like a table? That's a pretty modern question. Um, and, you know, it becomes, it's a way of asking a question that sounds a lot more like science than anything else. Hey folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. I'm your host, John Price. In just a moment, I'll introduce you to Dr. Tanya Lerman, the participant for today. At first, I'd like to make a couple of notes. The, f- the first thing is to introduce you to the band, The Poly Dogs, if you're not familiar with them. Uh, their drummer is a is a, somebody I, <laughs> I adore, um, Matt and Mabe. And uh, check them out at polydogstx.com. Uh, the first song you heard is their first track from the album on their um, self-titled Polly Dogs, Polly Dogs album that just came out. And at the end of the episode, you'll hear a full song of We'll Be Alright. That's track number eight. That's cool. I've been reading a lot about this band, and uh, I'm excited to get uh, more Matt Mabe on the on the podcast. Uh, the second, I guess, musical note is Modern Nations. You just heard the song Clouds from uh, that band with my friends Nolan and Toby. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And of course, you can check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. Okay, so I'll be quick. I just want to introduce Dr. Lerman, and then we'll get started. Uh, oh, also, I, I posted on the Sacred Speaks Facebook page, I posted the article that introduced me to Dr. Lerman's work. It's a fascinating article on how, how culture, one's culture can affect the, the quality and the experience of the voices during uh, schizophrenic hallucinations, um, auditory hallucinations. And I am very interested in how um, the, this, this, this kind of core question about how the inner world and the outer world, quote, inner world and outer world are related. And that brings us to Dr. Tanya Lerman, who is the Watkins University professor in the Stanford Anthropology Department with a courtesy appointment in psychology. Her work focuses on the edge of experience on voices, visions, the world of the supernatural, and the world of psychosis. She's done ethnography on the streets of Chicago with homeless and psychotic women and worked with people who hear voices in Chennai, Accra, and the South Bay in Ghana. She has also done fieldwork with evangelical Christians who seek to hear God speak back, with Zoroastrians who set out to create a more mystical faith, and with people who practice magic. She uses a combination of ethnographic and experiential methods to understand the phenomenology of unusual sensory experience, the way they are shaped by ideas about minds and persons, and what we can learn from this social shaping that can help us to help those who hear voices that are distressing. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2003 and received a John Guggenheim Fellowship Award in 2007. When God Talks Back was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year 
and a Kirkus Reviews Best Book of the Year, and received the 2014 Grawmeyer Award for Religion, a prize that carries $100,000. She's published over 30 op-eds in the New York Times, and her work has been featured in the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, Science News, and many other publications. Her new book, Our Most Troubling Madness, Schizophrenia and Culture, was published by the University of California Press in October 2016. And the book under question that we talked about is called When God Talks Back. And I won't explain it, but it's a very, very interesting read. I highly recommend it. That's When God Talks Back. And this book came out in 2014, I believe. Let's see. 2012. So check out all her stuff. She's fascinating. And uh, I'm really grateful, Dr. Lerman, for your time. Thanks for, uh, as as I've said a lot of times on this uh, project, thanks for indulging my... um, Thanks for indulging my curiosity and spontaneity. Got a lot of cool stuff coming up this next month, including a conversation with Stuart Nelson from the Institute of Spirituality and Health, then a conversation with Aaron Prophet, who's written a book, wrote a book called The Prophet's Daughter. Kirkus Reviews says a must-read for anyone seeking to understand how cults operate and view themselves in relationship to the world. I'm excited about this one, and also excited about um, Patrick Summers and his book, The Spirit of This Place, How Music Illuminates the Human Spirit. Patrick is the conductor of the Houston Grand Opera, and we did a project together a few months back, and uh, I'm excited to get to know him better and, and chat with him on the subject of music and spirituality. So hang in there. we got a lot of stuff coming up. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I, I think that's it. So we'll leave it there, and I'll bring you the conversation. Dr. Lerman, I'm so excited. I've been reading this book, and I'm, uh, I don't know, I felt a lot of questions that, that are certainly related to what you wrote in the book, but I'm also really curious about culture. Um, I'm, I'm a... A psychotherapist, and so I, I certainly am interested in mental health, but really about how we envision an identity, how we envision our place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how, then, of course, how things like families, religious structures, so on and so forth, participate and inform that dance that we do mm-hmm. as human beings becoming who we each are. So I, yes. I, I want to set us up. Um, and then you get to bash all my ideas if you want to, because uh, okay. you, <laughs> you have full license to go wherever in the hell you want to go. But I, I was thinking about kind of looking at the bigger picture with culture and then getting a mm-hmm. little bit more into things like your studies of witchcraft, um, certainly psychosis and mental health, and then into uh, what you were doing in this book, When God Talks Back. Is that an okay structure for you? Sure. Okay, great. So I'm super interested in culture, I, I, but I also know that I'm a bit of a layperson when it comes to speaking of culture. And so I've been stoked to talk to you about what this thing is that we call culture. Would you riff on that for a little bit? Sure. So uh, short answer is that nobody knows. We keep struggling to define it and whatever. But as as one of as my supervisor once said to me, when you're in the United Kingdom, you just don't know that people are so different from each other. There's no such thing as a, as a culture. And then you go to France, you step off the boat and you know that that culture is real. So there's something, you know, so my tribe will talk about culture in a couple of different ways. Um, they'll talk about the patterns and what people do um, patterns in uh, what people say and patterns in what people say they do. And I, you know, and I, I tend to think of culture as the, um, the inferences you draw of other people. So by inference, I mean that, you know, we're humans, we observe the world, 
and we make rapid fire judgments about what's going on in the world. And culture, I like to think of culture as the kind of common threads in those judgments. So, you know, I see a group of kids running around on a playground and if they have, you know, a baseball bat, what I would call a baseball bat, and they've got a ball and they're trying to, one kid is throwing the ball to another and then there are other kids around, I might draw the inference that that's what I would call a baseball game. So that's a piece of culture. Those are ideas that I share with many, many people who, like me, who would be watching that game. And if we can kind of make more or less the same rapid-fire judgments. So that's what I think the culture is. Kind of, you might say these are expectations about how people should interact and, you know, ideas about... um, what's going on in the world. And some of those ideas are um, pretty basic to what it is to be human. Like the idea that if you, you know, if you drop that ball, it's going to fall down. You let go of that ball, it's going to fall down. Well, that's not really culture. Um, Although you might call it gravity that starts looking a little bit more like culture. Um, But, you know, there's a lovely book. Sorry, I'll stop, stop in a second. There's a lovely book by um, a woman called Fox um, about watching the English. And she tries to describe culture. And she says, you know, when I go try to drive in a different country, it takes me about just a few minutes to figure out that when that another car, it looks like the other car is going to hit me, but I see that there's a kind of, there's a rule that the car will move aside once you're within a certain distance. That's an expectation people have in this country. That's what I call culture. And I kind of think that that's right. Or, you know, like she's British. One of the things that, that the British do that's very cultural is they talk a lot about the weather. Now, why do they talk about the weather? Well, she thinks it's because they're anxious. They're socially anxious. Um, That's an interpretation. But the culture is that the people have the feeling that when when you meet somebody new or you meet somebody, it's just that when you meet somebody, people kind of draw the conclusion that they, 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 they think they ought to talk about the weather. It's something that they do. But that's kind of what, you know, the, so I think of culture as these implicit assumptions, these implicit understandings, the um, ideas that help you interpret some, what somebody else is doing and the ideas that help you decide what to do. Another gr- a great anthropologist called this the patterns of and the patterns for behavior. Well, and that gets... I always think about, I use this example of if I walk into one place with my shoes off and, yeah. you know, one home I'm, I'm shamed because of it. And then another I'm, it's proper, you know? And so there right. are, there are consequences, physiological, psychological, emotional, relational consequences for acting within and outside of that culture. And that's, right. I don't know, that's always just very much interested me. I mean, so Okay, so let's kind of go into some of your history a little bit, if you're okay with that. I'm I'm curious about the decision-making process to become a psychological anthropologist and what predisposed you to check that box. It's a good question. I wanted to be a book writer. I was really interested in people and how people behaved in different social worlds. Um, I was really interested in the way people thought and the way that you know, stories and myths and, you know, and, and other fantasies that people had shaped the, the kinds of judgments that they made. And so um, I, you know, I didn't want to be in a philosopher because philosophers try to come to the right conclusion. 
you know, they think about some social problem and they decide what should, what we should think about it. What's the proper definition of belief, mm -hmm. for example? Yeah. I'm much more interested in, you know, what are people doing when we observe them doing what we call believing? So we're using that word to describe something. What are people really doing when they're doing that thing that we're trying to describe? You know, how do the ideas of other people, the experiences of other people, how does that shape them? So, so, and so that's one. It's so, but I noticed in your book, you would talk about this is an important kind of, you have this meta conversation with the reader about the questions that you tend to ask. Yeah. And, and that, and I, I hear that not about, I mean, do you buy the idea of bracketing? Can you, as an anthropologist, can you, can you take yourself out of the scenario? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think you really can. I think there are certain kinds of people who are happier at doing that than other kinds. Um, so I think that uh, I tend to be the kind of person who both like really wants to be part of the social world and um, but uh, sometimes also finds myself also watching the social world. And so I, I often kind of, I noticed this my first project on magic, I was able to both react like other people in the group and also say to myself, oh, the reason people believe in magic is because they have experiences like that. That you saw. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and um, so I so I think that there are people who become anthropologists are a little bit more likely to be those kinds of people. Um, there's uh, you know there's there's a there's a joke about anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists, which is that. The people who become anthropologists are people who don't like their society, and people who become sociologists, they're the people who don't like their class, and the people who become psychologists, they're the people who don't like themselves. <laughs> I don't think that's fair. But it's but it does capture the fact that anthropologists tend to be people who like watching. Yeah, I mean the only thing I'd change about that is that um I just noticed psychologists really like to figure out what in the hell makes them tick. You know, there's yeah. that, that, what is the inner world? You know, what is the, and then you, so you've got these kind of micro macro components where you're like, one's looking at kind of inner dimensions and the others are looking at how interrelational exchanges and kind of larger bodies of people. I, I, yeah. I get that, you know, it, it, what are our kind of personal predispositions that lead us into the, curiosities that we try to discover more about yeah and i i that speaks to me yeah and the reason i think of myself as a psychological anthropologist and you know those of us who do that interdisciplinary mix of things you know are people who are really interested in the inner world as well yeah but we tend to be a little more interested in psychologists these days particularly particularly tend to be pretty interested in the brain and the body. Yeah. And when they talk about figuring out what makes things tick, they tend to be really thinking about there's a, there's a mechanism in the brain that's explaining this. What is it? And so people like me were a little bit more likely to say, well, that inner world is really shaped by other people. And how does that affect things? You know, so we're a little less likely to be interested in you know, the part of the brain that is, you know, has a lesion or has, mm. you know, has this kind of association here. But um, and a little more interested in uh, how does, you know, how does God emerge out of social relationships? You know, how is that inner world made in social relationships? You know, is that really... You know, some people think that the inner world is really dialogic. It's it's mm -hmm. really about other people in, in your mind. You know, is that right? You know, we, we're, anthropologists are a little bit more likely to think that it's right. Mm -hmm. That we some I, I noticed you gave a good tip of the hat to Winnicott and a couple of other psychoanalytic thinkers. You know, in referencing self-object theory and looking at how we 
kind of, t- you know, to use crude light, take in these various relationships that form these inner objects. And then we are, of course, mm-hmm. destined to live out that <laughs> repetition right. throughout our lives. And you, you bring up, I have two, two um, directions to go there. The first, if I'm, if I'm really honest, I am super curious about your interest in witchcraft and magic. Uh-huh. And the, the <laughs> other, I'm forgetting right now because I'm so interested in witchcraft and magic. I wonder... All right, that's okay. We can, we can go there. Oh, the second was, um, it, it, it flows into the next, um, is imagination. And if you could, so if we maybe could use some of the, your work in witchcraft to talk about your, the idea of mm-hmm. what the imagination is and certainly how different cultures imagine the imagination differently. Yeah. So I became interested in magic witchcraft because it does seem to me about be, to be about the power of the mind. You know, it's it's really about the the idea that certain people um, and often all social worlds put you know limits on this. You know, certain people, certain kind of training, certain kind of words, certain kinds of ways, but. You know, those people are able to make their intentions affect the world directly. So, you know, we think, particularly in a secular world, we think that the mind is really separate from all of that. That the mind is, you know, even epiphenomenal. Yeah. It's like the byproduct of the brain. And it's, you know, and it sort of doesn't do anything. I sometimes think of this as the citadel theory of mind that they, you know, a citadel guards the city and it's separate from the city and it overlooks the city and it's very important to the city, but really, you know, it doesn't have much to do with the city. But, you know, it's it's like, you know, the, the, we have this model of the mind as being, you know, absolutely important to who we are, but it's we're behind a wall and those thoughts don't do anything except to reflect on and comment on and, you know, when American, particularly when American women hang out with each other, they become friends by talking intimately. They share their feelings about things with each other. It's a pretty odd thing to do in the context of the world. You know, we, but we share our feelings because we don't actually think that our feelings affect the world. Well, magic, they do. Magic and witchcraft, they do. That's, you know, witchcraft is you're angry at somebody and you feel that your anger can affect them directly. And actually, ideas, social worlds, I mean, that's not the witchcraft I studied, mm-hmm. but the idea of witchcraft that's like common across the globe, more common in certain social worlds than others, is the idea that emotions affect the world directly. You know, you hate, you love, you, uh, you, you fear, and something goes out from inside and does something that's, you know, and I just thought that was fascinating, just really interesting. It's, it sort of resonates with some very basic ideas that we have about our own emotions. And it doesn't resonate with some of those ideas. You're looking a little puzzled. Well, I'm thinking about the, uh, my first thought was projection and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, I like to study the Jungian world, you know, it's kind of the religion, philosophy, certainly culture. But when, when I've talked about projection before, I I use it, it's a projectile. And so the, the, one of the ways we talk about that is that I project onto somebody and on some level, I don't know how it happens, but whether it's resonance or attunement or whatever it is, the, the, in the relational space, the other can kind of pick up on that even beneath consciousness. And it right. it has an autonomy and its way with the relationship. And, you know, we don't know what happened there, whether it's infatuation with love or it's hate and anger. And but then I also thought about the projectile, the literal projectile in shamanism and, the, the you know, the dart that somebody gets stung with and the shaman is kind of removing that and how often i think about that as as this you know as this interrelational stuff that flows out so that was me just kind of processing what you're you're saying and interesting how these all all these cultures have an idea of that 
in um... it's pretty basic yeah and so it's you know and of course as an anthropologist i don't try to figure out what really works and what doesn't work i'm just trying to figure out how the you know the structures of ideas behind it is it is and, that liberating uh, i mean uh, yeah you got because yeah, I mean, there's not like this overbearing like should I have to come up with the answer you know you're you're yeah. you get to be super curious and yeah and not have that ogre breathing down your neck you know that you gotta you gotta find this out exactly yeah so yeah I think so I think it is kind of liberating that way it's fun and so yes yeah, so I, I I was interested in in this set of ideas about the mind affecting the world and now, we weren't really supposed to believe in it, but it was a, a pretty basic to human experience at the same time. And here were these people in London who were had, you know, who were thinking of themselves as witches and magicians. Mm -hmm. And other people thought that they were pretty odd in some sense, you know, you know, it's not supposed to be something that you really do. But um, but they were really interesting. So that's how, how I ended up writing about them and trying and to understand that. How long did you spend in that community? A long time. So, you know, anthropologists typically think of themselves as spending about a year of really full-time immersion. And it gets different, you know, depending on, you know, how difficult it is to understand that world, how... You know, when you're a graduate student, you can just take a year and go be someplace. That's right. And you're a faculty member, and all of a sudden you can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, and so you, you know, so, um, but yeah, I spent about, about a year full time. And then I kept, you know, kept my ties with the community for, you know, as long as I was in England. And so I was doing my doctoral work in England, and, um, and I did this work in London. How, how does that kind of work? And we'll, we'll get into the other stuff, too, because I want to leave plenty of time to talk about the book. But how does something yeah. like that affect you and change your view of the world? Well, I mean, I developed um, I, a pretty rich appreciation for how powerful these practices were. So in, when I first thought about what I was doing, I was thinking just in terms of ideas. Um, you know, people have narratives about the world that we call magic. And I was going to figure out how people in this particular social world adopted that set of ideas, those narratives about how magic worked. And I hung out in the magical world, and it was pretty clear that people thought that if you were going to understand magic, you had to do magic, that some people are going to be better than others. And that um, the people who were good and who would practice, you know, they would change. Mm -hmm. And I found that I changed. I found that I started to feel magical power, started to feel that, you know, there were invisible presences. And so that was pretty striking to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I don't... And with the idea that obviously then, um, you know, then one, it, therefore the spirits are real. Right. I end with the idea that, you know, humans, when people join these groups, they really experience the spirits as being real. They really experience the magical force as moving through their body. And that is something, you know, I can't decide whether there really is magical power, but I can say, well, these are the under, these are the conditions under which people are more likely to experience it. <laughs> it just makes me feel like I think I can't remember where I heard this quote, but it, you know, whatever matter and consciousness and you know whatever all this stuff is, it's weirder than we can imagine it. And yeah, that, that tends I'm to make a lot of that. sense. Yeah, but and it's. It's also true that the kind of work I do, if somebody says that they have experienced God, God shows up in the room, my, the immediate question I have is not, well, was that really God or the devil? My immediate question is, where did, the, where did God show up and how did you know that God was there? What was it about the way that you thought 
and the way you felt and what you saw that led you to say God is there. So you're starting. You yeah, you're starting from a place of curiosity. Yeah, it, it is not judgment. Yeah. It doesn't obstruct. It doesn't create a, a conflict between you know you and me and that and other mm -hmm. and all that junk. You're, I'm sure that's fantastic for people to have someone with that kind of interest and curiosity in their community, helping even them understand themselves better. I don't know if that's exciting for them. I know it would be for. I don't know, I just, there's something I think very exciting about an outsider coming in to the inside and interpreting what's happening that I think is really liberating and nice. It's, um, it depends on who you are and it depends on how, <laughs> sure. and it depends on how important it is to your community that the outsiders share the same point of view. Well said. So it yeah. can be completely liberating if you um, cherish diversity yeah. and you'd be much more disconcerting if you, um, you know, like, you know, there, there definitely was a church that I was initially doing some work in and that was a community that really had a strong sense of a boundary between themselves and the world. Mm -hmm. And so the boundary was, if you believe in God, you're on this side of the line. And if you, if you're not, if you don't, then you're an enemy. And they were, that was much more complicated. Yeah, I bet. Do you, so it, what happens there? I mean, do you, do you continue the work? Are they, like, how does that, when there's that kind of delineating line between um, I vow, well, do they yeah. keep you around? Well, I, I, I could have stayed and I actually ended up leaving the town anyway. I took a different job, mm -hmm. but it was pretty exhausting. And one way to think about that exhaustion is that when you're an anthropologist, you know, you're studying community and you want to get out of this a book, maybe a paper. When you're in that community, they want to get out of you, your soul. And so it's not an equal <laughs> change and it's just like it's oh a my little God. imbalanced <laughs> it's like you know a lot of a lot of work and so you and particularly if you're the kind of person who's both like wanting to participate and also to observe it's just exhausting because it's just a battle all the time about you know and then you know it's, it's just hard well let's i i do I'm, I'm looking at our time and i want to be able to get plenty of time on uh your work here in When God Talks Back, would you introduce, yeah. uh, in the intro, I'll introduce it a bit, but would you just kind of set us up here with maybe some some of your personal experience and uh, then we'll talk about what you found. So I started doing that book because in this first, because I went to a church and I was trying to figure out how this church kind of worked as a community and who God was in this church. And this woman said, well, if I really wanted to understand God, I should have a cup of coffee with God. And I thought that that was a mind-blowing kind of comment. And so the book that I wrote is really an attempt to figure that out. What, what were people talking about? And so it's, the, uh, it's a study of a, what would be called a charismatic Christian evangelical church. So these are people who seek to have a um, intimate back and forth relationship with God. And I describe it a little differently than the way that evangelicals would. But this is basically a, maybe a quarter of the country has this kind of idea about God. And the, the, the goal in this church, what's so cool about these church for people, churches for people who are members, is that they sort of represent Jesus as a person. So he's just right next to you in the room. There he is. And it's not, people wouldn't quite say it like that, but um, people, God becomes, is represented as so intimate that you sort of notice that maybe you don't really fully understand or believe in God. And so you want to do more of that. And so you really come to really try to experience God very intimately if you're a member of this kind of church. 
And so this is, you know, so other people will know of these kinds of churches as the churches that have really dominated a lot of conversation in America in recent years. Um, they tend to be churches that treat the Bible as literally true, that, you know, really they feel they should share their faith with other people. And they experience, you know, they sense that, or they have the understanding that a personal relationship with Jesus is what you're really after. And so I was trying to figure out how Jesus became a person and what that was like for people. One of the, one of the first things that I was really surprised about, I guess two things, how, how modern, modern Christianity really is. And also, <laughs> I had no idea the 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 deep relationship with um, charismatic hippies doing LSD and Christianity. Yeah, I was really yeah. surprised. So I think that's a really important story. These churches, as I read their history, really come out of the creepy, the hippie Christian movement. It's and a new term, it is movement. You're at a creepy movement. It's uh, and there's this, this great video uh, that's a great documentary made about the life of Lonnie Frisbee. I completely recommend it. This is a kid that looked just like Jesus. You know your kitchen calendar idea of who Jesus is, and he was just in the '60s. He was on the California beaches, going up to people, kids on their towels, and saying, "Jesus loves you. Come and be loved." And all these kids. I mean, it was the you know people were after experience. Yeah. And those kids, they basically traded out LSD for speaking in tongues. You know, they were both you know, vividly experiential. Um, but, you know, kids who ended up as Christians kind of were, didn't like some of the experiences they were having. You know, it was kind of tough to be in San Francisco during the summer of love, right. particularly if you were a girl. It was hard. And so the this was a church. There were a way of being in the world. You know, if people were, you know, gave people a very clear set of ideas about how to be a proper person, which was sort of soothing if you'd just been, you know, all kerfuffled by the drugs and the whatever. And um, and he got this cool relationship with Jesus. And so, um, I mean, there are other people who might tell the story a little differently about, you know, movements and the Bible Belt and the kings, but I think that hippie Christians are, are pretty important. Anyway, and these churches emerged from these kids, and they were all over the country, and the churches sort of adapted to bring them in, and a new kind of church emerged, which, uh, in which they had contemporary music, so hippies playing their guitars. They had, you know, vivid spiritual experience sessions. So the most famous church is actually in Southern California um, at Calvary Chapel. And... Um, and it was actually formed because Lonnie Frisbee showed up on the doorstep of this guy who had a um, Chuck Smith, had a church of 25 people. Chuck Smith used to be a Pentecostal preacher, was as conservative as they come. And he saw that there were all these kids on the beaches and he wanted to cater to them. 25 people in his church. Within a small number of years, he has like 25,000 people in his church. He's got people in afterglow sessions in which they're feeling this Holy Spirit. And it's, you know, moving through their body and they're speaking in tongues and they're doing all kinds of stuff. And those were the churches that really emerged in the 70s and the 80s and just became a thing. And they sort of imagined themselves as reaching out to the unchurched of America. So the way they thought, they thought that the biggest challenge, you know, they were less worried about people being having, having the wrong idea of God than people having no idea of God. They just wanted to get people into the church and have them experience God and feel that God was there for them. And they did that unbelievably effectively. I mean, they had another whole line, you know, there was a whole 
you know, history of conservative Christianity that we would now call fundamental, mm-hmm. you know, and so these churches were already there, but this new form of Christianity basically took the, um, these very vivid ways of experiencing God that really you'd find, you would have found like before the 1960, before 65, you would have found these ways of experience, experiencing God a little more commonly in, um, Pentecostal churches. Yeah. Often, you know, with, with people with dark skins, sometimes often different, not middle class. And these new churches emerged for the white middle class that just used all these techniques and got people to experience God vividly. And they have been, you know, fantastically successful in the, you know, if you, from the point of view of bringing Americans into the, into the, congregation butts in the seats yeah exactly they have done so many butts in the seats it's been amazing so just to orient really quickly if i'm not mistaken the paper or the book the fundamentals came out in 1910 is that something like 1910 it was it was a list of the things that the good christian should believe in I don't think they were actually called. So they became, it was a list of the six or seven or eight things like the virgin birth that the good Christian just had to believe in. Um, It was actually a product of people in seminaries and people in churches who were, you know, saw with horror the direction that the modern world was going in with all its secularism and you know that was a period in which in part in response to the emergence of i think the efficacy of science in the 19th century Hmm. that you know you had all all of a sudden you have electricity and you have railroads and you know you can do things with science it's not just you know evolution it's just a set of ideas about the world, but you can do stuff with electricity. Modern medicine is a whole lot more effective now than it was back in 1850. Yeah. And as all that was happening, you know, many, many Christian churches liberalized. They decided that God was, maybe Jesus was, as somebody's phrase was, Jesus was the faculty lounge lizard. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't really supernatural. So all of these churches, you know, really became much more backpedaling of anything supernatural. And they, you know, they thought of the, all of this stuff about Jesus, about maybe even his disciples, but certainly his virginal mother. That was mythology. That was a way people had of talking to make the ideas of Jesus sound important. And the people who produced the um, charter that became called the fundamentals and had their churches called fundamentalist churches, they thought this was terrible. They thought that this was a giving away of the center of Christianity, that the point of Christianity was that Jesus really was God and that God really was different. God was not a philosophy. God was a presence that we was... You know, it was, and you owed this God certain set of moral behaviors. What Eliade would call a sky God, right? And this is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. a big God, yeah, sky God. And um, some people think that the God that emerged out of the fundamental shift, the shift towards the fundamentals, was actually set out ideas about belief that were quite different than ideas about belief in any time earlier. So belief kind of shifted to a yes, no commitment. Jesus was a thing in the world. And so many, many, arguably the, the Christianity of a secular society is different from the Christianity of society in which Nobody really talks that much about doubt and everybody goes to church. Mm. Um, but in any event, that was the, you have this big shift in the, ten, you know, the early decades of the 20th century. And then you get another, and after that, many of these more conservative ch- churches really pull back from participation in American life. And in the 50s, 
there was one church or really a seminary in particular that decided this should change. And there were a couple of other things going on. And that and that um, commitment to enter the mainstream and the seminary I'm thinking of is Fuller Theological Seminary, Southern California. And when that, and there was this confluence between the very conservative Christians, theologically conservative Christians, and the hippie Christians, and that kind of produced these these amazing churches that have, you know, now are pretty pretty present. What was it with the hippies? The hippies were getting together with the bikers and the cowboys and all kinds of folks, even the conservative Christians. That was a an open yeah. bunch. Yes. You, you started to say something about, and I wanted to go there, about belief and how, you know, I guess the way I would say it, you can correct this, but how what we imagine belief to be has changed and shifted when it comes to a religious context. You know, now we... Yes. Now the question is, do you believe or are you a believer? Back to that yes-no proposition. Right. Before right. that, what what was belief about? Well, uh, this, this historian Wilfred Cantwell Smith um, makes the argument, and he's really using the King James Bible, so he's actually going back uh, to the you know the early 17th century. He says that when people talked about belief or believing the language of belief or believing in the Bible. Um, that was much more about trusting. It was more about sort of trusting that you could rely on God, um, commit yourself to God, be there with God, rather than answering the question, is God real or not real? I mean, I think, I actually think that supernatural things, invisible things, they're always different, have a different kind of realness than tables and chairs. I think that's, it's very human to think that. And, you know, and I think that part of the job of religion is to help people, you know, develop this sense that, you know, the, this invisible other is there for you, involved with you, concerned for you, you know, responsive to you, and that people to maintain that sense, you know, that's kind of what church is about. I did the work of church, the act of prayer, the devotion of worship, all the, the reading of the Bible are all ways to kind of help you have confidence in this invisible being. That you know, if there weren't a church and somebody told you there was this invisible being around, might not have much impact on your life. Mm-hmm. But the question of whether God is real meaning yes or no, is God there in the world like a table? That's a pretty modern question. Um, And, you know, it becomes, it's a way of asking a question that sounds a lot more like science than anything else. So that, that, that idea of God becomes interwoven with the kind of materialistic scientific proposition post 1700s and now we're sitting in the after effects of all that the the confluence of those energies you know the the immaterial and the measurable material absolutely and that's actually one reason why ideas about shamanism and magic um and supernatural have really exploded um in ways that are free from fear. So as the world has become more secular, certain parts of the world have become more secular, religion is uh, defined in relationship to to the secular. Um, People in a sense are more free to um, be interested in elves you know, to kind of have all sorts of ideas about the world that, you know, might have been a little odd before or more, you know, the the occult has become much more of a big thing for people. Unless, of course, you're a drunk Irishman walking down the road after the bar, you may encounter an elf or two. You might encounter an elf or two, too. And there have always been elves in that sense in in Ireland, for sure. (laughs) 
<laughs> so okay, so I, I'm again sensitive with time, and I want to be able to um, to talk about these practices that you yeah. that you observed, and yeah. you know, I, and I I won't remember it. You fill it in. You had the almost these typological differences in how people experience it. You know, was it person and selfhood and emotional? I forget what the the list oh, was. I, what I was talking about was. Um, So people learn to experience God as real and uh, real in an an available kind of way, um, really by prayer. But what they're doing, they're doing a bunch of stuff that is in connection with the prayer. They are um, teaching themselves how to recognize when God shows up. So some people call that discerning. They are pretending that God is there when they're not confident that he's there. And they're doing a lot of um, kind of emotional standing in for God to help people feel comforted by God's presence when maybe they feel like they're not so sure that God is there. Um, Prayer practices are also practices in which, in effect, people practice interacting with God. They people are using their imagination because uh, God's invisible, can't you know can't look at God and you know you, even if you're looking at a, cro- at a cross, that's just wood. Mm-hmm. For the cross to really come to life, you've got to do you've got to use your capacity to represent. So there are these prayer practices that are often for Christians imagination rich. Like there, they rep, they experience themselves. They're talking to God, and they experience themselves as going for a walk with God, or they're standing in the throne room, or they're sitting on His lap, or they're you know doing something, and they are using their imagination to try to feel as if. And over time, that gets more and more strong. Yeah, and I think back to your point when we were talking about magic is this is where we get into that very, very modern question of, yeah, but does it really happen? And that's yeah. what I like so much about your work is that you've just thrown that out and you're saying, well, look, these experiences are, are, are experiences that people can, I mean, they're crying, they're emoting, mm-hmm. they're no longer carrying mm-hmm. around the guilt with, you know, with such and such and that thing. And mm-hmm. these are very, the consequences of these kinds of practices are very, real. Uh, yes. I think that's fascinating just because the, the, this whole entire community has built itself around these attempts and ways to directly experience divinity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's radical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got a group of people really helping each other to have those experiences. And they wouldn't quite put it like that. Um, they would say that they are holding each other accountable, or they are in, you know, they would, they would use a different language. But they are, you know, you go to a Bible study group, and people are talking about how God showed up for them that week. Mm-hmm. And what they are doing is partly affirming to each other that God did show up, but also helping people to. Um, correct their experience of God. So most people, you know, come into a church with their experience of people who love them, who maybe may have been imperfect. Mom and dad, often imperfect. And so your experience of the human's experience of love is often of a very conditional, very limited love. And in these churches, they're really trying to present God as loving unconditionally. Although, of course, there's this kind of, well, you know, if if you're really allowing God to love you, then you're going to behave like a good person. And so if you're not behaving like a good person, obviously, you're not really allowing God to love you. But um, the house group, somebody will say, well, I experienced God in this way. And the house group says, sort of reminds 
other people and sitting around the circle remind people that God is really loving. We're going to read this chunk of the text together and remind ourselves of how loving God is. We're going to read the prodigal son together and we're going to remind each other that we really feel like the older brother and as if, you know, God's not paying attention to us, he's paying attention to the younger brother. We feel that God is not paying attention to us, but he really is. And so people will st- sit around the group and they'll talk about that. And they'll talk about, um, they will in effect testify to each other. That's sometimes what they call. They'll mm-hmm. talk about ways in which, uh, to use their language, God has been faithful to them. They wanted something and God delivered it. Um, and, you know, prayers don't always deliver the stuff that people pray pray for. And so having this kind of testimony around the table is, is, is really powerful for people. I'm sure this is just a psychoanalyst's field day, given that you've got the family origin that's present in every interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's really, uh, and you can just see that so centrally. I mean, I think when God does become real to somebody in this intimate sense, God is serving for that person pretty much like, at least in ways that are related to what an analyst would call the, an inner object of their mom or their dad. Yeah. So it's, the, you know, there's a, you know, even when your mom isn't present, you sort of have a relationship with your mom. And um, it is that has, for most people, that has good and bad characteristics. And what, what people are trying to do in these churches is to create a relationship with this God where God sort of improves on mom and dad. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, complicated i think i actually think that the messiness in the stories of the bible help people to tolerate their own you know because the bible is all full of inadequate god stories inadequate human stories and inadequate gods right. god is full of judgment he throws right. somebody hi, hi, hi. hang on sweetheart i gotta hi tanya this is my daughter hi hi, mm. oh, hi honey hi i gotta finish hi. the interview sweetheart can you say hi can you say hi, hi. 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 Okay, I gotta go, okay? But I'll be down in one second. We'll go swimming, okay? Okay, okay go see Mama. I love you, honey. All right. That's very sweet. So, you know, what the church is trying to do is to, you know, really get, you know, enable people to have that inner relationship with a being yeah. who yeah. does all good things for the person. Um, and, but you're right. People are often, you know, trip themselves up with their own experience or their own past. I mean, a, well, this, a new this man, is the, oh, sorry, go, please. What, one of the people I knew, at this church I studied said that he thought that, that God would, you know, cripple him. And this was a comment that came out of nowhere. Um, that um, he just sort of thought that that God was going to really hurt him, make him into a cripple. Uh, well, where does where does that come from? Mm. It's um, something that comes out of something very deep. That um, you know, I mean, you can get there's certain anyway. That comes out of something very deep in his own past that somehow gets connected to the idea of God. What was surprising, I think, when you were writing the chapter on kind of psychotherapy is, you know, religion. And Jung actually wrote a paper called um, Clergy and Clergy or Psychotherapist. And he's, yeah. he's, he's looking at what happens when, you know, even my friends who are clergy, you know, they they have these rules, they'll refer out to a psychotherapist after like three times, or technically they're supposed to, and, or, right. you know, supposed to. And I couldn't help but reading that chapter on psychotherapy. You're, you're talking about, I mean, traditional Christian counselors that are working with the, quote, God concept. 
And I was pretty surprised with that language being amongst fundamentalist churches. The idea of a God concept seemed pretty yeah. deep. I mean, that's straight out of depth psychology. That was pretty surprising mm -hmm. to me. So this really is a psychotherapeutic God. I mean, I think that God is um, any time you get a big God, and you get a, and all big gods, all monotheistic gods are really modeling love on some on some order even though they're doing it in very different ways you know um are they really different are they not well i you know I, anyway let's, let's say that they're different ways um but this particular kind of church has sort of elaborated the rewards of, of believing in god into a kind of psychotherapeutic process so the church where I was spending time in an American, you know, context where in middle class context, people are pretty well educated, but people, the church tells people that um, God will deliver happiness, that God will deliver comfort, that God will deliver a sense of self that is an easeful sense of self. It's... Um, not that has a lot to do with American culture in that most basic needs are provided for and so on and so forth. Um, but it's also, you know, it, is, it also is the mark of a culture that's very fascinated by psychotherapy and really thinks that you can change and be a better person. And that's exactly what God is supposed to do. Yeah, because that that really is in our imagination. I mean, it has to be because we we shaping the self you know, it, we would in in the tradition that I've been raised in, it's individuation. You know, we can there are these pathways and processes and powers and forces that are living out. And if we but become conscious, you know, of of what we're living out, we can then have more choice. And I was yes. pretty fast. The other thing that I, and I know we got to finish, but the other thing I was so fascinated with was how much a lot of this sounds like what in the kind of analytical psychological world we talk about is active imagination. Yes. That, you know, you're, you're, you're dreaming these dreams on, you know, in active imagination, we're taking a dream and we're saying, okay, well, what do you, what do you do if you go through that door and you're leading a client mm -hmm. through that imagery? And I'm blown away reading your book going, well, this is just, this not just, this is active imagination. This is a form of, Absolutely. which I, I was pretty, again, pretty yeah. surprised by. Yeah. So I actually think that that's central to most religious traditions. You know, Any time that people are interacting with a God that becomes relevant, re real in their lives, intimately real in their lives, you know, I think that God, that God offers the opportunity for a lot of change because people are actively using their imagination to interact with the God. And, you know, and, and often... That they're changing in relationship to that God. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it, it becomes a real relationship and with caveats. And the tool of the real relationship is the act of imagination. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Lerman, I, I'm really, um, I'm really grateful because I, I, I randomly emailed and, uh, you know, I had actually read that uh, something in the BBC about your work with schizophrenia mm -hmm. or psychosis, and uh, mm -hmm. and I thought, wow, that's cool. And and I'm I'm so I'm going to go back and read your other uh, one of your other books on witchcraft. But this this book, I'm I'm really grateful you pointed me in this direction that we that 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 you wrote it, that I was able to read it, and certainly that I'm able to chat with you today and uh, dig into some of these topics a little bit deeper. Well, thank you very much for your interest, and good luck to you. Pretend as we lay that the world
world is just as kind as To me If we'll be alright 